I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today, I'm here with Billy Keels. Billy's with First Generation Capital Partners. Billy, thank you for coming on the show today. Hey, Jason, it's a pleasure to be here, man. I'm looking forward to uh, to the conversation today. I've enjoyed yeah, me the, too. the pre-conversation. <laughs> I, would, uh, I would love it if we can just start with you know, sort of you giving us your background, you know, how you got started and and then what, what took you into real estate? Yeah, sure. And one of the other things is as a fellow podcaster, I, if you're okay with this, Jason, I would actually just like to ask your audience uh, really quickly. Um, if you are here and you're consistently here, uh, one of the things that would be really, really awesome is if you could take just a couple of seconds and leave an honest written review as well as a rating for Jason. I know you do a lot of this and you're continuing to be here. And this is a great way for Jason to also go out and get the, the best guest for you so that you can continue to go out and take action. So um, with that, just as a, as a backdrop, originally, uh, I'm a guy from uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, you and I both know, Jason, we've got about a nine hour time difference between the two of us right now, yeah. which is pretty amazing and, and pretty cool. Uh, but I come from a very middle class family. Uh, both of my parents work two jobs most of the time. Very, very, very blue collar. Um, I watched my parents make very difficult decisions as it related to finances. Sometimes they had to uh, pay bill A or bill B at the end of the month. And, and that, you know, that's kind of a difficult thing to, to see as you're growing up. Uh, by the time I was 12, we'd lived in three different states. So from Ohio to Colorado uh, to Texas, we'd probably lived in seven or eight different homes. Uh, and, um, and all those things that I was telling you about before, watching the struggles with my parents. And, and along the way, they also had some marital problems. They separated, they got back together, they separated. Uh, eventually they separated and uh, my, we went back to Columbus, me and my brother and sister, because they were both born in Colorado. Um, and one of the things that happened along the way was also my parents both not having a formal education. One of the things they thought was really, really important is for me and my brother and sister to have access to the best education possible. So we always lived in uh, the areas that had access to good public schools, but we couldn't really afford to live in those places, if you know what I mean. Sure. So it was great because we, I was, I saw a lot of things and a lot of my friends, their parents were buying them brand new cars and they had always had the nicest clothes with the, the, with the, um, the horses on them and all that kind of stuff. And that wasn't really what, what I saw, but what it did is it really helped me to be motivated to go out and to work and to, um, to work hard, to get really good grades, uh, get a lot of the work ethic from seeing my parents and got to the point where I ended up going to university. I was the first person in my family to go to, uh, go to college and finish college and got two degrees. And I was set up for my dream job. And when I was going to college, because one of those things, I went to college at Miami of Ohio in the Southwest of Ohio. Um, and I was a really good student, like an A student. Um, I, today I call myself a recovering perfectionist. Uh, but when I went to college, everything was set up to really get the dream job was, was working for Procter and Gamble. Well, not only did I get turned down once, I got turned down twice. I was rejected twice. And so that was a really, really big deal for me because I thought, wow, I, I've done all this work. I got really good grades. I should be here, but I didn't fit into their process. Well, it just so happened that that second rejection 
one of the things that happened is I was really good friends. I was a co-chair on student body government one, one of the weekends for brothers and sisters to come in. And, and the co-chair was from St. Louis, Missouri. Well, he told me about this job for people that were working and traveling around the world. They were with Fortune 500 CEOs in, in their direct reports. And it just so happened that summer, they were the 1996 Olympics were happening and they were hiring for 26 roles. Well, out of about 6,000 people, I think roughly, um, I was one of the 26. And so what that opportunity gave me was in five years, I had the opportunity to work and travel throughout some 58 different countries. And it really expanded my, my thought process, my, my mind and the things that I wanted to do. Uh, but at the, at the time, I was also traveling 25 to 28 days a month. I missed a lot of uh, friends' weddings, uh, children, uh, their children being born and a lot of events. And I realized that after five years in 58 countries, I just wanted to take a break because I was tired of traveling at 26 and haven't seen so much. I decided not to go get a normal job quote unquote, normal job. And I took a one year sabbatical. I was accepted at university in Paris at a university called the Sorbonne. Uh, I went there to learn French language and culture. I wanted to learn how to salsa dance and I wanted to learn about wine. And those things were the language and culture. I really started learning. I drank some wine. So that also helped my salsa dancing, I think. <laughs> um, and, 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 and things happen in a way that Jason, I didn't want to actually go back to the U S. And so I, I'd worked and was very privileged to, to work with a lot of these fortune 500 CEOs, their direct reports. And so I started, I actually stayed in Europe. I left Paris and I moved down to a town called Montpellier in the South, got into the IT sector where I got back in and I continued to do what I was doing before I was leading teams and managing people. This time I was selling over the phone in French language uh, and culture or French language. It was a really big challenge uh, because I was doing that over the phone. My French was about a year in uh, and I continued to do that. I ended up meeting a very cool, uh, cute woman from Spain. And I, they sent me to Italy to start up a sales team uh, with the company that I was working for in the hardware space. I ended up leaving Italy, went back to France. The woman that I met right before, uh, she and I stayed in touch. She did not want to move back to France because she left to move to Barcelona, Spain. And so one thing led to the next and uh, I left the hardware industry. I got into the software industry and I left France. I moved to Spain. I live in Barcelona, Spain. I moved here in July of 2005. Uh, we got married in September of 2008. Our first son was born in October of 2009 and our second son in May of 2011. And up until recently, I was working in the corporate world. Um, I was, uh, a, an executive at a, at a very large company, enterprise software company, market leading company. And I continued to be an A student. I moved up uh, because I got the promotions. Um, I was a top achiever. I was at President's Club and was doing all the things that I was supposed to be doing. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it, but um, it wasn't for any financial reasons. I actually really liked my role in the, in the organization, but some real life started happening. And that was one of the things that led to me realizing that it was time to leave the corporate world and, and more importantly, not have to go back. And um, so just kind of that as a backdrop, I guess one of the things I always tell people is that you have to really be careful when you want to take those one year sabbaticals because mine turned into uh, 21 years, a marriage, two children, I learned four additional languages and I've lived in three, uh, three additional countries. So, uh, so yeah, all of, because I wanted to take a, a one-year sabbatical and it's been awesome. So, sounds like a pretty great one-year sabbatical. I think a lot of amazing things came out of that. So, so that's pretty yeah. cool. I, I thought, I'm sure you do too, when you talk to people on your podcast, but I find that really one of the coolest things is just kind of how you know, people that end up in, in real estate, what is their background? Sort of what gets them there? 
how did each of those things, you know, kind of contribute? So I feel like there's there's obvious uh, connections between sales and real estate and capital raising and things like that. I feel I feel like how, how do you how would you tie in kind of your work experience into getting into real estate and and also I guess sort of talk about that uh, how you sort of turn that you know turn that switch getting into real estate as well. But but what was your I think often the skills that you develop as you move along and obviously I mean languages, all of that is going to be huge in talking to people, right? That's, yeah. that's probably the main key. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know you asked me to, maybe I'll tell just a really quickly, even how I got into real estate and, yeah. and I can t- build on that and tell you a little bit more about the skill set. But I actually got into real estate because as I mentioned before, I don't come from a family that, I mean, very blue collar family. And so I didn't know the diff- growing up, Jason, I didn't know the difference between saving and investing. Mm-hmm. because the way that I grew up, when I watched my parents, when they did have money at the end of the month, so there was money in the in the bank account, that was considered investing. What I later came to understand was that's just saving money. Sure. And then once you saved it, then you invest it. So <clears throat> kind of that as a background, I, I was doing as an A student does and a recovering per- perfectionist. When I got my job, I started you know, I went in and I sat like most people and they told me, Hey, listen, you know, you're going to be doing this and you're going to earn this much money. And I realized that I'd have some money left over. And so they talked to me about putting my money in a retirement plan and it was the 401k and then things over that was an IRA. And of course I'm an A student. So what did I do? Well, I'd listen to what they told me and I did exactly what they did. And so I started putting my money away and I realized that there was a difference between saving and investing. And so as you start to realize that, and you do the things that you're told to do, just like in grade school, you study hard and you get the good grades and then that's reinforced, right? Same thing was happening. But about four or five, about five years after I started working, the 2000.com bubble happened. And so what happened was I realized that the value of my portfolio decreased. And so I'm freaking out, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, I can't, this, this, hang on, this is, doesn't make any sense. But what I was told was, hey, listen, you know, don't worry. You're just going to do some DCA. And with the DCA over time, it's going to come back. I was like, well, what's DCA? I don't even understand that. Dollar cost averaging. And it's, you know, it's kind of like putting the same amount of money in every single time. And uh, eventually it's going to come back when it's high, it's high. When it's low, it's low. And on average, you will, you know, you'll make up over time. I thought, okay, that sounds fine. Made sense. And it was in my financial advisor was right. And actually over time, things were even better than they happened in 2000. Things were moving well beyond that. And then 2008 happened. And when 2008 happened in the great financial crisis, I actually lost 33% of the value of my portfolio and it just hurt. And I was like, wow, you know, this, this is no good. And I thought about what my parents always told me, which was, Hey, listen, Billy, if something happens once, shame on the person. If it, if the same thing happens twice, shame on you. And so that's when I realized that I needed to do something to start to gain more control over my financial life. And I, I'd, I'd been back to the States and I, I, my, my girlfriend and I at the time, now my wife, we were there and I saw this little purple book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I'm sure lots of lots of people talk about. When I read that book, I started it, but I didn't finish it. And it took me about another two, two years to actually get back stateside. I picked it up. I read it on the plane. And then I went down that rabbit hole. I went down Rich Dad. I, re- I read all the Rich Dad series books. I started listening to podcasts. I started watching videos. And I was a theoretical ninja. I knew everything about real estate, all of it. Um, I was ready to buy. Um, I could tell you every single thing to get to the NOI with the, um, with the um, cash after debt service, all that kind of stuff. And so I continued to feel really good about all the theoretical knowledge I had, but it took a couple of years later. And, and it's one of the things that 
has, has left me for a really long time. I was kind of ashamed to talk about it, but now I realize that it's, it's therapeutic for me. Number one. And number two, I realize that I'm not the only one because it took till my oldest son's third birthday. Um, the night before his third birthday, I wasn't, wasn't really feeling very well. Cause I knew that the next day I had to fly. I had a, pl- a flight to Germany cause I had a business meeting and I was at this business meeting all day. I knew I was going to be there all day. Excuse me. So I actually woke my wife and our one-year-old son up at about 5.45 in the morning. You can imagine they're in the bed sleeping and the hair's all over the place. And, you know, like morning kind of the, the, the bed's all wrinkled and stuff. And so I get up, I wake them up, I go get our three-year-old up. And my whole thing was I wanted to be able to sing happy birthday to have given him a hug and a kiss. And when I did that, I left. And the entire way to the airport, I just wasn't feeling well. Like I just was like, hang on a second. I want to be a really great employee. I want to be a great dad. I want to be present for these types of moments. And so after that meeting, that was the moment in time when I went from like that theoretical ninja to now I've got to take action because I, I'm not going to do this again. I don't feel like I want to miss another birthday for my son, for my wife, for my daughter, for, for my, not for my daughter, for my, for my son, my wife, or, or anyone that I, I really love. And so when I got back from that trip, I remember writing down, you know, that this was the time that it was now I wrote down my goals, how many doors I wanted, how much income I wanted and things like that. And so it took me about eight months after that to actually purchase my first property. Actually, my wife and I were in Cairo, Egypt. We live in Barcelona and we bought this property back in New Jersey. It was amazing, right? It was, we were faxing stuff back and forth. It was, it was pretty interesting, but that's what took me to get involved and actually going from theoretical ninja to actually taking action and, and getting practical knowledge. I wasn't perfect. I made a lot of mistakes and I continue to make mistakes, but not the same ones over and over. Um, so, so that's the first part about how I actually got in. Now, the, the other part of the question, which you asked me in, in terms of what do I see? So as I've been in sales and sales leadership for the better part of 20 years in enterprise sales, so you know, selling software that anywhere between on the low end, uh, probably 100,000 euros to largest has ever been is 25 million um, in terms of, uh, of a single sale. And so the thing that you realize, whether you are selling or you are leading salespeople, um, and I believe sales is the best profession that exists when you do it properly, because as a sales professional, you're there to solve someone's problem. And in order to do that, you must be an effective, number one, someone who asks questions effectively. You need to also understand the solution that you provide and be able to map the solution you provide to the challenge that the client has and be able to also help the client understand that, yes, your solution can help to solve that problem or no. And also, of course, it was a large enterprise, so it was, it was very complex in terms of the number of layers. And you're talking to the C-suite of these multi-billion-year-old type of uh, organizations. But having had that real-life experience that took me from theory to action was the first part. The second part, really understanding how to understand your client, understand the solution that you provide, and being able to map those together is what I've seen over and over that makes the most effective um, call it salesperson or call it a person that can solve problems, consultant, uh, what have you. So hopefully that gives you a, gives you an idea and answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's a really great sort of perspective on, on like when you're talking to essentially really anybody right in the, in, in the real estate space, whether you're talking to the brokers that you're working with, whether you're talking to investors, whatever the case may be, 
you need to know what questions to ask and and really listen to what what they need and then provide those solutions. So I think that's a you know sort of a perfect way to put it. Um, so when you had that you know sort of moment of switching from and and I really love that story because I have a sort of a similar <laughs> similar uh, life changing when my son was born it was like yeah something needs to change I need to figure this out so I, I think you you do have those moments where you're like work, 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 making good money. Wait a minute. I'm not present. I'm not home for them. Like that all of that isn't there. So I I definitely resonate with that story. Yeah, man. And it's one of those things where it's, and it's for me because I didn't come from money. And so having that currency, right. Having that currency in my account gave me and gives me a sense of security And so when you're working and you are working more and you see that the fruits of your labor mean that your bank account is increasing in terms of the the currency units that are there, it goes back to being that A student, right? It's just a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's reinforcing the work that you're doing, but it takes a moment to recognize it's not just about the money. It's about what are you doing with your time? Because that's the one asset that you cannot change. It doesn't matter if you have no money or if you have trillion billions of dollars everyone gets the same amount of time and so when you have an event that feels incongruent i.e i was at a business meeting earning more money at the same time i have the whole issue with taxes going on so i was keeping less working more hours that's a whole different thing but i was missing the thing that was really important and that was being physically present being mentally present with my wife with my son and and with my in-laws and that incongruency is what led me to take action and what leads you to recognize like, hey, look, yeah, you don't come for money, but you, that doesn't buy you more time. And so, uh, yeah, so, but I, but I also, and the more and more people that I talk to, because there are a lot of people, you know, a lot of us that don't come for money, but all of a sudden you find yourself in this position where you're like, wow, I'm an credit investor and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And you were like working more and more and more and more. But yeah. You can't just keep working because the things that you really want to do and the people that you really want to be with, they want you to be there too. Um, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And and you know when I think well, I think a lot of people don't get financial education, but especially when you when you don't come from money is you know, we we apparently <laughs> strikingly similar backgrounds. Although all of my moving around was in the same state, basically, but mm-hmm. but we we moved a lot when I was young as well. And and what you what you see you know, is if, if it's always a struggle, if it's always a struggle to get money, once you figure out a way to make that money, then you're like, okay, I got it. I figured out what to do, but, but then what you've figured out is just how to work hard, right? You figured out a, a, a work ethic. You figured out how to make, make more money, but what you didn't figure out how to do is to create financial and time freedom. That that's not that's not a part of that transition. Like you have to make another transition into, you know, okay, this is what I've created this life where if I work a lot, myself, my family, we're all we're good. Mm. What I haven't created as a, a feeling of we get to spend time together, we get to do whatever we want. And and so that's a you know, sort of a, a second transition that I think probably most people don't make that one. Right. They get into the, okay, I figured out how to make money. I'll just keep doing that. But yeah, making that second transition of, well, now I want to 
have my money work for me, what, however you want to say it is I want to create this time freedom. Yeah. You, one of the things that, so I love that way that you phrase that because a lot of times it is about how do you make more money and you work more time and your bonus checks are getting bigger. And it's, it's re it, it, once again, it comes back to that whole, you start to reinforce this, this, this whole philosophy, what you start to realize. And the more that I am around people who are wealthy, not rich, wealthy, you start to realize that they're not worried about how much money they make. They're worried about two things. Number one, how are they spending their time? And number two, how much money do they keep? And so once you start to realize that those people that are wealthy, not rich, are playing a different game, as long as you're open to understanding what that game is and you have access to being able to understand and you're not afraid of actually applying what you learn, then you put yourself in the right position to be able to move forward and ultimately get that personal freedom, that time freedom, that, that however you want to call it, but you're using your time in the way that you truly want to use your time. Not just because you feel like you're going to make more money, because once again, it's about how do you spend your time and how much money do you keep? Because then that's what ultimately will is gives you the feeling of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when you, when you're working for someone else, whether you're an hourly employee or even a, a salaried or a, or a commission-based, whatever it is, you're still, you're still really just trading your time. You're just, they're paying you for time. That's it. Like that's, and if you have, if you're commission-based or something like that, then maybe you have a little bit more of control of what happens in that time. But, but in reality, they're still just paying you for time. And that's, that's the thing I think that, that most people don't, maybe realizes you have to figure out a way to, to not be just paid for your time and have your money actually like based on production, uh, mm. whether it's time related or not. And, and if that's investing, if that's, I think sales is a really good profession in the sense that it is, mm. it is generally commission based. And so you can have some control over that time. But if you're doing that for someone else, you probably still to some regards, you're under their control. Yeah. So, and it's a great point. So I would, uh, you know, now that I have a little bit more time, I was out and I'm, I'm looking up more, more different data points. And so I went to this, um, there's a, there's a website for salespeople, right. For sales execs, it's called RepView. And what was really interesting is I started looking in the space that I was working in the software sales space and the enterprise software sales. And it started saying, what are the top producers based on employees data, right? Cause the, the employees feed this database salespeople from companies and there are companies like uh, the ones I used to work at, which are like completed with Salesforce and, and Workday and, and all these others, right? Oracle, SAP. And basically the top producing salespeople, according to, to RepView, um, the highest were earning $1.2 million, right? And the top 15, I think the, the lowest of the top 15 was earning $800,000, right? They were making that much money. And so in the environment that I was working in, I understood what it took to make, even at a top achiever, what it took to make that type of a salary, or maybe not even that type of salary, maybe only half. Mm -hmm. So to get to those types of salaries, the amount of hours that you have to put in managing client relationships, managing internal relationships, managing administrative processes, all of that, when you start looking at that type of, of, because it's really based on output, not hours. But in order to get the output in a sales profession, 
you have to put in hours. Like you, you can't put, you can't do 40 hours a week to, to be a top producer. And most people that are in sales are trying to solve big problems. And so you're going to put in more and more hours. Well, the more hours that you work and the more money that you make, typically it puts you into the highest tax brackets. And so when you start recognizing that, you know, you, if you're in, you live in California, you make $600,000, $700,000. Well, you don't actually keep that. You only keep half of that. Yeah. And so you start realizing I'm doing a lot more hours than most people. Yes, I'm making more money. But if I look at the amount of currency that I'm earning per hour, it's probably not really that much, especially when you consider what are the tax implications, which is another thing. The more people that you start to hang around that are wealthy, they look at the world at a very, for, through a very different lens. Once again, it's not how much money you make, it's how much you keep. And they spend their time learning and associating with other people that are usually kind of strangely enough of thinking about the same things and actually going out and doing the same things. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it I mean, the tax, <laughs> we, we could have like an entire, probably many podcasts on the tax <laughs> uh, implications and all of this and just how it is, you know, like, like you said, like once you become, you know, it's great. It's great to, it's great to make a lot of money. Like do there, we can't sit here and say like, that's a bad thing to have happen. But if you're doing it as a, as a wage earner, as an employee, you're it's, it's income. And so it's going to be taxed as income tax. And yeah, in California, you're giving up about half of what you earned in taxes. Right. Yeah. It's actually really interesting. So, and, and it's, and more importantly, it's not just income, it's typically active income, right. earned yep. income, which yep. is taxed in a very different way than passive income. Um, because those are definitions by the IRS. That doesn't just mean that you're not working for money. The IRS actually taxes you in a different way, whether it's earned or it is uh, passive or active or passive, or technically, I guess it's passive or non-passive. Um, but that being stated, it's, you know, it is one of those things and maybe going off a little bit on a tangent, but when, when, when I started in real estate, what it helped me to do is gain more control. And I liked that because I could, it, the model was simple. It was have people in the property. Those people are in the property. They pay rent. That is revenue, right? Cause I'm from a sales background. That's the revenue that's coming in the door. Well, then you have these operating expenses. You have to pay your insurance. You have to pay maintenance and repairs. You have to pay taxes, all these types of things, property taxes. And that eventually gives you your NOI. Well, from there, then you have to pay a mortgage if you have a, a debt or mortgage on the property and then everything else. And I think I mentioned this earlier, you keep as the, the, the profit or net profit or cash after debt service. And that was, that was working because it gave me control. And so the real estate helped control. And then I started meeting really cool, awesome people. And I was doing this from Barcelona, Spain. And even today, 100% of the assets that my companies own are in the United States. And so real estate helped to open my mind to new things. Okay. Well, it's not just trading time for dollars. It's not just, you know, closing this next big deal and getting this bonus check. You can actually create value. And through the value that you're creating, it actually will pay you currency. Awesome. So then I started meeting more people and I realized, okay, well, hang on, real estate, this is one thing. Later on, Jason, I found out that I was something called an accredited investor. I didn't even know that because the people that I was around, well, I didn't talk about it. I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. I didn't know that the fact that if you're, if you're making $200,000 a year for the previous two years in the current year and you're filing separately or individually that you would or someone who's a credit investor or 300,000 the previous two years or in your current year, um, 
300,000 as a family, you're an accredited investor. Or if you had a million dollars of net worth, not including your primary residence, that you were an accredited investor or that you could take certain tests, you were an accredited investor. And that meant that you had access to deals, opportunities that the general public will probably never, ever see. And so when you understand that, you say, okay, well, hang on a second. I have access to these types of opportunities. I'm meeting people that are providing me knowledge. I'm learning, I'm taking action. So then I started passively investing with other people because it was like, hang on a second. I can give somebody else two, $300,000. They do the work. I can keep doing my day job because that's what I like doing anyway. And then I will start to have the same benefits of control because I'm, I know the person and I know what they're doing. I started then investing in ATM machines because that also helped me now cover a new kind of challenge that I was having. And then to the thing that we were talking about earlier, what I started realizing was I was someone who was a high wage earner. I was someone who was very good at my job and I spent a lot of time there. Uh, my wife also was doing other things and she's not a U.S. citizen, so it's a different thing. But a lot of times I speak to people that both family members are working. And so um, you're there and you're busy and and the real estate is working really, really well or the other passive investments. But I started getting these things called passive losses. And I was like, hang on a second. <laughs> what is this? Like, this can be like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let's get into this. Yeah. And you can't. And I was like, well, right. wait a minute. What do you mean you can't? And I said, well, yeah, you, you know, this is passive income. The IRS looks at this this way and you, it's going to stay there until you actually dispose of the asset. I literally, I got my CPA in it because I, I didn't understand it. Right. And so I needed somebody that could explain it to me. And so when I realized that, okay, those are, those are passive losses, they're going to stay there and I'll be able to use those in five, seven years, something like that, eventually going to serve me. But I started realizing I'm getting this really tax efficient stuff on the real estate side, but I was still writing 40 plus percent checks to yeah. the Uncle Sam because of my wages, my, my earned income. So I was like, hang on a second. I thought I was supposed to not be able to do this. So anyway, when I learned the difference between passive income and active income or passive and non-passive income, I then started looking for another solution. And so as I started to look for the solution, I was able to find a solution, but the solution was actually in the energy sector. And so was able to, in effect, be able to invest in energy energy projects, a very specific project around carbon capture, being able to invest in this type of a project, not only did it create consistent returns for me, but it also helped me with the other problem that I was having, which was paying 40 plus percent in my earned income. And so the reason I say that is because it started with real estate, but because you're looking to solve problems and I had multiple problems and those were, you know, they're not life ending problems, but they were problems for me. And so I was looking for solutions, was able to get the the solution over control, be able to create passive income. So I personally wasn't trading time for dollars. And I was also able to lower my W-2 taxable, uh, taxable obligation uh, to Uncle Sam. And so by using all of these different vehicles, what it's allowed, what it allowed me to do, and now what it allows our investors to do is get to the destination that they want to get to, i.e. being able to have their personal freedom and do it in the way that makes the most sense to them and get there as quickly using the right vehicle that they're comfortable with. And so I, I say that only because there's so many different opportunities that exist, so many different vehicles, as long as you're clear on where it is that you want to go and how quickly you want to get there. And you also have access to individuals that can help to educate you, provide you with access to, to opportunities. Then this is, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful space to be in. Yeah. I, and I think this is a, I'm not sure that this was where I saw this going, but this is this is actually a really good topic, I think, to kind of stay on for a minute in the sense that 
it, it, as people are investing in anything, right? Real estate. And you talked about ATMs, you talked about the energy sector. Like these are things that, that maybe people wouldn't necessarily like put into the, to the, uh, real estate, you know, at th- call that, that real estate investing. But the, the point is a lot of those are still the syndication model. So it's kind of the same as what a lot of people are talking about when we're talking about multifamily and all of that. But I always tell people, and I think it's really important point is you have to figure out what is, what are your goals? What are your problems that you're trying to solve to find the right investment vehicle for you? And what that requires is some understanding of how money works and how, you know, we've talked about the tax side of things and stuff. And it's like, you brought up the ATM fund. I'm also in, or ATM, I'm also invested in the ATM fund. Okay. And what's nice about it is it's, it's a lot of cash flow. You also get some depreciation, so it can help you on your taxes if you qualify to use those. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't create any equity for you. So right. it it really, you know, and I, I actually maybe can talk about the energy uh, sector investments because I know nothing about those. But mm-hmm. it, it, the point being, there's each vehicle has its own, you know, sort of pros and cons and where it's going to be. There's, I've seen people are now doing Bitcoin mining uh, funds. And and so it's like all of that stuff is viable investment options. But even as a passive investor, you need to understand how it's going to work for you. And most, unfortunately, you will hear a lot of people in the real estate space talk about how you're going to have these great tax advantage things please give me your money to invest. But, but the problem that you just talked about is, is hundred percent true. If you're not, for example, in a real estate professional, Correct. you can't use those sort of on a yearly basis. You can only use them when the asset gets disposed of. So finding a way to change that, whether that's, and, and again, I would, I would love you to t- talk about the energy sector yeah. stuff for a minute, but whether that's figuring out a way to establish real estate professional status or finding something there, there are ways to make it all work, but you got to understand it. Yeah. So, and and you hit on so many things that I, I just, I like music to my ears, right? A couple of things. One, um, yes. If you are someone who is a busy professional, like I mentioned, I, I'm a very, I was a very busy professional, a W2 employee. My wife didn't meet the criteria to become a real estate professional, as you talked about it before. And if you don't know that, you go into assuming that you're going to be investing in things that are going to, and my assumption at the time was it's going to bring down my taxes. I'm going to pay less in taxes. It is extremely tax efficient, right? And by the way, neither one of the two of us are giving anybody tax advice. These are things that you should be talking to your tax professionals (laughs) about. We're not CPAs. Um, No, we're not CPAs and we're not giving any advice. Like take this and and, and use it or have conversations with people. Um, But as I started to realize, and it was literally, Jason, hundreds of thousands of dollars of passive losses that were there. And I was like, well, what is this? Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand it. So I invested time in, in capital with my CPA to walk me through this whole thing because it was new to me. Like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't come from money and I just was putting my money over here in real estate. And so as I started understanding these two different buckets, I thought, okay, well, hang on a second. How can I go out and continue to do what I'm doing in in the real estate because I enjoy them because they're all real assets. That's the beauty of it. All of these are real assets. You can touch them, you can feel them, you can see, you can understand. And so that part, I I started to understand, get education, get access. You hit on something also that was extremely important. You said managing on on a yearly basis, right? And so 
the thing that happens is, of course, if these losses were there, you eventually will be able to take advantage of them. But and this probably is from my big company experience, but you, and you're also saying the same thing. We manage our lives or you manage your life. You have a North Star. So you know over the next five years where you want to go. The reality is you manage your life on a year to year basis and it starts on January 1st and it goes to December 31st. That's not just random. It's also the, the IRS when they look at where your income comes in and where it goes from. And so you manage, and this is what these, the really wealthy people that I meant, meant, mentioned to you before, it's how do we do this on a yearly basis? How are we managing the tax efficiencies? What strategies are there? The tax codes change every year. What, what is out there that we can be a part of? Yep. And so when you start to understand that, once again, it's understanding how are you using your time? And then from there, as you realize where you're using your time, then you're figuring how much can you keep, right? Um, and so from that as a background, you talked about yearly. And so one of the things that you look at on a yearly basis, and this is what, I ha what happens with a, lot, with a lot of our clients today, right? A lot of our investors, you're looking at and you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, I had a couple, someone called me the other day and we got in a conversation too late, but mentioned, Hey, listen, you know, how was, how was the last year? It was right after tax season. I think it was like the 19th or the 20th, or maybe it was the 20th. Ah, oh, you know, best year ever. Uh, it was absolutely phenomenal. I was like, Oh, cool. That has it make you feel. And the, and the response was, well, not very good. I go, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, I just wrote a $200,000 check to, to the, uh, to the IRS today or yesterday. I thought, woof, how did you feel about that? Like, mm, that's why I said it didn't feel very good, but it was my best year ever. And so I started thinking to myself, okay, well, imagine something like what we were talking about before, this, this energy sector play. When you, are, when you have the opportunity, I mean, we can go into it, but just to kind of give you an idea, um, if that same $200,000 that that person wrote to, um, to the IRS if they would have placed that in another type of, of an opportunity and, and say that that person was, and we'll just make this, just making this up as an example, that person was paying a 50% or that person was in a 50% tax bracket between their state and federal um, income. Well, if that person places $200,000 into the type of asset that can give them bonus depreciation. And I know Jason, that you all talked about bonus depreciation before, but if not happy to uh, happy to talk about what that is but that person is able to take 50% of their investment and be able to use that against their W-2 income. As an example, once again, talk to your tax professionals. And so if you can imagine you're placing $200,000 in, in the, a type of an opportunity that, ye, that is able to provide you with approximately $100,000 in terms of tax credit against your W-2 income. Yeah. Well, if you're able to then have that could you imagine using that from a tax efficiency against your active income and then being able to use that or a portion of that to then place into something that's a passive investment? So you're actually benefiting not only your W-2, but you also have uh, the opportunity to invest some of that capital in something else that is passive, that has a different tax structure. So it's, it's just the different types of conversations that you have. I mean, we we're talking about it and you asked for the example. So I just thought as an example, once again, not giving anybody advice, just talking about it as an example, how you can actually understand where is the destination that you want to go to and then be able to understand where you are doing from a year to year basis to be able to optimize or, or get to the destination as quickly as possible. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, and to be, to be fair, these are, good problems to have. 
right? Correct. There's, there's yeah, lots absolutely. of people absolutely. that yeah, yeah, yeah. don't have, uh, in, in <laughs> you and I were those people, our parents were yeah. those people. There, there's yeah. lots of people that don't have these yeah. problems necessarily to worry about. However, the goal, like, like my goal in with this podcast and with, you know, bringing in investors is to, to help people get to the point where they have these problems and then also know what to do about them. And you, you know, you do sort of live your life on a yearly basis, at least from a financial standpoint, because that's how the IRS has structured it for us. You don't really have much choice. Right. The, those, those losses, those passive losses that you may not be able to take advantage of on a yearly basis, to be fair, you keep them. Yep, and so, absolutely. you know, when, when an asset sells, now you have all these, these passive losses uh, suspended, they build up, you can use them then. So maybe you won't pay a big tax bill when the asset sells. That's potentially a good thing. But the point you brought up is exactly what I was thinking is what you're losing there in the meantime is that opportunity cost. So Correct. if you save, if you save yourself a hundred thousand dollars every year uh, that you would have paid in taxes and you then invest that money the, the exponential growth of that over that time, waiting to use them for something that has sold is, will be tremendous. I mean, you would have made yourself a ton more money in the meantime. So it's, it, that's the whole point. That's the reason why people care about it. Exactly. And you just, that's exactly it. Because once again, it's about if you're able to free that in the year, then you can even redeploy it into other passive yep. investments. But this is part of what we've talked about before. You have to understand where do you want to go? And more importantly, why do you want to go there? Right. Um, And then once you're clear on why it is that you want to go there, what steps do you want to take and how quickly do you want to get to the destination? Which vehicles do you want to take? Do you want to take a boat? Do you want to take a plane? Do you want to get on a bicycle? Do you want to get in a car? Because they're all viable options. Right. I, I use the I always use the I use an example. Like if I wanted to go visit you in California, I've got a couple options. I can leave my home here in Barcelona. I can take the metro. I can go to the metro to the train station, the train station. I can get in somebody's car, get to the airport, fly from here to New York and then New York to, to, to L.A. or whatever. Or I have another option. I could actually take a flight from here to Lisbon. I could get on another and then I can get on a boat and I can go across the Atlantic Ocean, take three weeks to get there from from uh, from Lisbon uh, to New York City. And then from there, I can get on a bicycle. And I can get all the way to LA. I mean, it just depends on how quickly do I want to get there and which of the vehicles do I feel comfortable with, which do I understand and which do other friends that I know can help me understand, hey, did you, did you ride the, the, the unicycle from, from here to there? Oh yeah, how was it? Oh. And they can give you the idea. And it's being able to use all of the, yeah, I mean, it's, it's being able to effectively utilize these different vehicles, but it all starts with understanding what it is that you want and more importantly, why do you want it? Because if you don't understand that, when it gets difficult, because it's going to get difficult, it's not a matter of if it gets difficult, when it gets mm-hmm. difficult, you've got to be able to clinch on and hold on to that why to help move you forward. Yeah, 100%, 100% agree. I think that's actually a perfect segue into the question asking portion of the podcast. So thank you for that, uh, that transition, <laughs> Billy. That, that I'm here great. all week. I'm here all week. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so the, the first question I, I ask every guest, obviously, is, is related to the name of the show. But but what is your why? What what drives you? You know, you talked a little bit about um, your son's birthday and how that sort of caused your mind set to shift, but, but what's, what's driving you forward at this point? I know a wise can be fluid. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, so I, I believe that as well. I think that they definitely can, can change, evolve over time, depending on where you are. Now, one of, the, one of the things that happened to me towards the last, the part of last year is um, my father had some very significant uh, challenges, uh, health challenges uh, with his heart. And it was one of the things that made me realize while I was with him in the ICU, was thinking to myself, wow, I've been continuing to go to this job every day. I like it, but life is pretty finite. This is a really like glaring example and reminder that it's finite. And so that helped me to get some things really clear on not only what I wanted to do with my life, but why I wanted to do it and how I wanted to continue to invest my time. And so for me right now, the focus is being able to have as much quality time being present physically and mentally with my wife, with my children, with my, my, my family uh, in the U S and here, but really being present and being a part of what they're doing. Um, that's the number one focus and priority at the same time behind that we are building out the infrastructure for, uh, for our company and things like that. But, but why is, is really being able to focus quality time, um, and energy with, uh, with my family. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, strongly agree with that hmm. <laughs> that driver i think it's a, a very incredibly powerful really you know because as you mentioned before you will have hard days you will yeah. have things that are gonna try to derail you from the 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 journey try to push you away from those goals but uh if you can look at your why and say okay what you know <laughs> what wouldn't I do for them? And, and generally that answer is going to be nothing. So you, you can push through and, and have the hard, get the hard days behind you. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, and I know you're going to ask me another question, but I'll tell you one of the things. So just speaking of why, one of the things that I have been doing and I'm really enjoying it that I did not do um, probably two years ago or even a year ago was my, my boys, we're not big video game players or any of that kind of stuff. We got one at, at Christmas time and I'm actually really enjoying playing video games with my boys because I watch their faces and they are just so excited. And when they start beating me, like we have a basketball game. And so they beat me at this video basketball game and they are so passionate about it and they just love it. And I, the, just the interactions that I'm having playing video games, which I haven't done since college, it's just one of those things. And before I thought I'm not going to waste my time in with playing video games with the kids, but it's really investing my time in watching them as the little men that they are really grow <laughs> into, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's grow into little men to bigger little men, but, but it's a lot of fun. Like it's just, and it seems like a very simple thing, but I'm really enjoying that, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, the little stuff is almost better, right? It's like, we want to talk about these like giant thing. Like we, we, a perfect example. Like we took our son to Disneyland the other day. He's three. We took him for the, for the first time. He's never, never really been to a place like that. And it was like, for the most part, overwhelming, but, yeah. but if I picked out a few moments and, and almost even just like the anticipation of it, just those few moments really that, that might seem little, but like, to me, really paying attention to it and being present was amazing. Like we, we stopped for lunch and we're in Disneyland. All my son wants to do is go to the playground. That's what he keeps talking. I want to go. Where's the, I want to find the playground. I want to find the playground. I'm like, I don't, I don't really think there's necessarily a playground. There's a playground here, daddy. Let's go. For, okay. So I, we just literally walked. Okay. Everybody else was still eating lunch. We just walked around looking for the playground that doesn't exist, but I'm like, yeah. I don't care. Like this, he was excited yeah. about it. Like that, that joy in his face, like it didn't matter. <laughs> There's no sense in like 
trying to tell him there's no playground. So it's, I, I totally get it. Like even, you know, the video game thing, it's just, yeah. just doing those things with them. It's not, it's not about the thing. Yeah. It's about the, the time spent with them and like being present and interacting. So I, I think, yeah. yeah, super, super cool. Yeah. Um, second question for you, Billy is, is uh, tell us something about yourself. And I feel like you've told us a lot. That's pretty amazing, but maybe something about yourself that uh, isn't common knowledge. People, maybe they don't know about you. Uh, I would say a special skill. Usually I tell people, but knowing that you already speak four or five languages, it is, <laughs> that's a pretty special skill. So maybe you've already used up all your, <laughs> your yeah, special. I thing. mean, well, well, I'll tell you something. So one of the things in, in, I, I'm, as I mentioned before, like I'm from Columbus, Ohio. And so the fact that I've been very fortunate to work and travel throughout some 86 different countries is as we talk, you know, I'm happy to share that. The fact that I've learned four additional languages, that is, is something that I've worked really, really hard on. And I, and I made a lot of mistakes. I've had a lot of very, very, very amazing friends that have helped me. Um, I have an amazing wife who's a fluent Spanish speaker and Catalan speaker. So that also helps. Um, but one of the things that I have also put off for quite a while, and it's more of like a self-limiting belief, is I always told myself that I couldn't cook. Like I didn't know how to cook. And so when I finished the corporate life, um, I was gifted a cooking class. And kind of one of the things that I do typically, Jason, is if I get something, I usually like I'm the guy who gets the really nice um like a, I get a nice shirt and then I get home and I put it on the rack and I don't actually use it for, I don't put it on for like, I don't know, two months, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And so typical with the other things, cause I just like doing the day-to-day -day stuff. And normally this type of a class, I would have waited because you could, I could have used it at any point in time in the year, but rather than waiting until much later, cause I was like, well, I'll be doing this. I'll be doing that. I took the class as quickly as I could. So it was like the second week of January. I did five weeks. And I realized that there were so many self-limiting beliefs. Like I just didn't know the basics of cooking or the, the food stuff. And I didn't have a class and have a mentor and a coach and I wasn't actually practicing. So when I did that for five weeks, I realized that, you know what, I'm actually not a bad cook. I'm not a great cook either. And it's a lot of fun. So, um, yeah. so that's kind of a new little skill that I'm developing. Very cool. Very cool. I, <laughs> I, I say learn to cook. I semi learned to cook just by using blue apron because it, it was uh -huh. like, I can follow directions, right? <laughs> like I, I don't consider myself a cook, but I can follow the directions. And it's like, you do enough of those things following the directions. I start to notice patterns and I'm like, yeah. oh, what if I do this here? Like, and so, uh, yeah, I, 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 it is, it's, it's like anything else, right? Just, just doing it, just, just doing it in some way. I'm certainly never going to be a chef at a restaurant. That's okay. But I at least can like, make some food for my family and not have it be terrible most yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'll be getting a Michelin three-star anytime soon. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um, when people hear this, Billy, uh, and they want to reach out to you, what's, what's the best way? And we'll put, um, we'll put whatever you want in the show notes too, but we'll, how do you like to be contacted? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's a kind of a couple different ways. I mean, especially if there are people that are uh, accredited investors, they want to find out a little bit more about some of the things that we're doing to help uh, the accredited investor today, especially those that are getting crushed by taxes. Um, you can find out more about us at firstgencp.com forward slash invest. Um, you, when you're there at the website, you'll find out other things, but that specifically will allow us to speak to one another. Um, as I mentioned, I have the pod, or you mentioned, I have the podcast, the going long podcast. So if you want to find out more about long distance investing, um, you know, Jason, 
I'm sure we'll be seeing you very soon. So no pressure there. No pressure there. <laughs> I um, promise. The, I promise it will happen. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Cool. Uh, on the going long podcast is great. And then I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. Uh, and as I, I kind of jokingly say, I think I'm the only Billy Keels here in Barcelona, Spain. So I should be relatively easy to find on LinkedIn, having conversations, meeting people and get a, get a little bit of an insight into some of the things that I'm thinking about and doing. Um, those are, I think, the best ways. But like I said, uh, if you want to check us out, firstgencp.com forward slash invest. Okay. Awesome. And we will get that all in the show notes as well. Um, final question for you, Billy. What what piece of advice, and I, let me change this a little bit for what I usually ask, but what piece of advice would you give to someone who's just starting out? And and honest, honestly, I usually say like starting out in real estate or starting out, you know, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like your your experiences are so varied uh, and, and you have you know, had these, you know, sort of mindset shifts and stuff that I think are really cool. I will just leave it at, what advice would you give to someone starting out? You take it where you want to from there. Yeah. Someone that is starting out, number one is start. Um, so I, I think that's the most important thing is just start, like stop waiting for all the traffic lights to be green. Because when you try to do that, like you will never start. I, I use my own example because I mentioned to you before, I was a theoretical ninja. Like I knew everything, anything and everything, but I kept waiting for the perfect deals right? Because a lot of times people talk about analysis paralysis. And I've been talking about this lately because it's, it's a principle that I was not aware of. And if there's one thing aside from, you know, starting before you're ready, because you're never going to be ready. Um, I was never ready when I've sold my very first deal in a foreign language and in, in different currency. Um, maybe when you're buying your first asset, whatever that asset is. But for those of you that happen to suffer from the similar type of thing that I used to suffer from, which is that perfectionist, that A student in you, and you wanted to get things right all the time, is there was General Colin Powell had a 4070 principle. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this at all, Jason, or not, but um, but basically the principle said whenever you're making a relevant decision, i.e., getting started, he never, when it was relevant, he never made a decision on anything less than 40% of the information and never more than 70% of the information because with less than 40%, he didn't have enough to make an informed decision. And with more than 70%, that was going to start to take them down a rabbit hole of finding perfection. So the, the, the way to get started is knowing and starting to feel comfortable with having between 40 to 70% of the information, not waiting for, perfect, for, for perfection and having enough just to get you started. When you are an A student, or even just a student, maybe you're a C student. Usually the C students are the ones that are leading or the D students right. are the leading organizations <laughs> like, normally. Like Gary Vaynerchuk they just talks about all the yeah, time exactly. how well, yeah. terrible he did in school. Look where he is it, now. It, yeah, exactly. So it's just, so this is maybe talking to, to me because this is the A students. When you are, you know, when you're there, just recognize that even when you get it wrong, quote unquote, you're going to course correct. You're going to be okay. So, but, but you can't be okay. You can't course correct unless you get started. And that's the thing that's really important. And it's something that I didn't realize enough. And when I started realizing it and started making uh, decisions based on imperfect information and course correcting along the way, surrounding myself with those that had been there before me, that's when things really started to accelerate. Um, Definitely, like you said, not easy. doesn't happen overnight. Like I was working for almost 10 years in my corporate career and building the side hustle. There were a lot of sacrifices along the way, but you, you can't experience any of that unless you truly get started. Go from the theory to practice. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those, 
I don't really like to call them mistakes or, you know, you said getting things wrong and any of that stuff that happens when it doesn't go the way you expect it to go, yeah. it doesn't, it's just a learning opportunity. That's it. Right. It's like, Oh, that, that didn't work in this situation. Just, That's it. just take it and use it. It's fine. Yep. Go, go to the next thing, you, you know, cause you're going to make another mistake. It's going to, you're never going to reach a point where you stop making mistakes. That's not, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You, you can understand as a recovering perfectionist, it does there, it doesn't exist. There's not a point where you just stop where you get everything right. So nope. might as well stop thinking that's going to happen and, 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 enjoy the process and learn from those things that don't go the way you expect them to. Yeah. It's, it's not a high school or college exam. Like there, there's not a perfect hundred percent, like yeah. it's not going to happen. So don't wait for that. Um, and if you're listening to this and you feel like you, you have to wait for that, you're going to be waiting for a long time and chances of things changing in your life that you really want them to change. You're, you're, you're not giving yourself the opportunity to even have things change. So start to feel comfortable, maybe take a, you know, make a very small decision first get that feedback, you know, and build up to those decisions that are bigger. But um, if you don't do things differently, you're going to get the same results that you've always gotten. And I think Albert Einstein or somebody super smart said something about that. And it, uh, it is either insanity or something like that. But, um, but yeah, you've got to, you got to do things differently if you want to get different results in your life. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Billy, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Love the, love the conversation. Uh, I I think people are going to get a ton of, you know, value out of this. It'll be a really good, really good episode. So thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate the opportunity, man. Yeah, absolutely. All right. With that, we will go ahead and sign off. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.